that don't know, my name is Caleb Wiles, and I've been coming to faith now for almost two years with my wife, Katie, and three kids, Grayson, Emma, and Avery. Today's scripture reading can be found in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Can you hear me? (laughs) Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Thanks. It's good to have a reading again. It's been a little while since we've had a a regular rhythm and routine. How many, how many of you are routine people? Like you kind of need it to have some sanity. I am with you. You know, I, um, I hope I didn't say this last week because this is where my mind has been. Vacation is great and we get to relax and kind of go barefoot for a week and all that kind of stuff. But it stresses me out sometimes because it's not my routine. It's not what I, it doesn't feel like real life. It's enjoyable. Gets us a chance to connect. But then I'm like, I need to get to where I can lace up my shoes again or something. I don't know. It's a weird little sickness I have. So pray for me and pray for those who know me. So it's just good. It's good to have some of our rhythms back and and being able to hear the word of God and in somewhat of an isolated sense, you know, we get to just hear it read, read it on the screen and and absorb it. You know, something that we used to do in church growing up, and I I say this sarcastically, but I I really get why we're at where we are as a culture and stuff, but we used to bring Bibles to church. And, um, and somewhere along the way, screens became the thing. And, and, uh, it's very helpful. Those people that are walking through the doors who don't own a Bible or maybe don't know their way through it and flip through, you don't want them to feel left behind and stuff. So we'll probably continue to do something like this forever. But, but my encouragement to you, and then also you don't hear the pages rustling much right now because everyone's got it on a phone, right? My encouragement to you would be to consider um, carrying a Bible, not for some kind of pretense or for some show or something like that, but to be able to make some of these notes and highlights or things like that that come along the way. Um, and then also just to be more accustomed to having it kind of in your grip. And so it's the kind of thing that you open differently from time to time. But uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, the, the real important thing that we're looking at here, though, this morning is picking up back in Acts 11. And I was thinking about this this week. We, we run into some names. We're going to hear, you probably heard this in that, in that verse that jumps out that says, and this was the first place that they were called 
Christians, Christ ones, or those of the order of or belonging to the group of Christ. And so there's a very important name. It's attached to us. We've been carrying it now for centuries. We are Christians. And in our country, we have a, a thing about a culture of Christianity. So we say that's not very Christian of you or something. We've been saying that for a couple of centuries now as a nation. But names have meaning. It's a little bit weird if you look at celebrity culture, the names that they come up. It's like the word that they're into at the time or something that they want to represent their kid. They just put that name on it. And you ever hear Michael Jackson's son is called Blanket? You know, and, I, and I'm sure if you if, if he had a chance to explain it, he'd probably be like, because he brings me great comfort. You know, I don't know. But his name, not strangely, Blanket now goes by a different name that he's an adult and has a say so in it. He was like, I'm going to move away from that one a little bit here. I don't know what his reasoning was, but I would be changing it. Um, my own name. I remember being horrified as a child, understanding what the meaning of the name Brent was. Brent is my middle name. But uh, we looked it up, and Brent means old man or over the hill. <laughs> now it fits, but then as a... 10-year-old, I'm like, oh, wait a second. And who starts that? You know, who names a baby a name that means old man? You know what I mean? It's like, well, there's your destiny laid out for you. Enjoy it while you have it, kid, because soon enough, you're going to be ancient and decrepit. I don't know. But most of us, when we have an opportunity to name our children, there's a lot of thought and meaning put into it. Maybe not so much the definition of the name, but who carried the name. Now is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an important thing to have middle names that might be associated to grandparents or things along those lines. And and so it has meaning based on who carries the name and, and what the name means to us. And so names are a very important thing. You see it, too, in... Uh, bigger names than just individual names. Uh, look at sports teams. You have a name on the front of a jersey and then one on the back, and they'll often challenge teams for, towards unity to say, which name are you playing for right now, the one on the back of your jersey or the one on the front? And you can see the difference in a team who is playing primarily for the jersey, for the name of the jersey they're wearing, the team that they're playing for, as opposed to the individual accolades or, or uh, accumulating their stats or those kinds of things or getting more spotlight for themselves. Names have significance and how we approach those names have significance as well. So when we're coming to Acts chapter 11, we're coming into a city named Antioch, and it's a very important city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a massive, bustling, cultural melting pot of so many different things. It carried the the nickname Antioch, the Golden Queen of the East. This wasn't some schlub city that nobody paid attention to. This is the one people would migrate towards and journey towards or want to be a part of because of all that was going on in its vicinity. In this port, it was a mixture of luxury, of kind of highbrow culture, if you will. There was commerce taking place, political strategy and power. All of these kinds of things made this a very cosmopolitan kind of atmosphere. In our day, you could kind of picture it being like if New York were to meet Las Vegas. 
Las Vegas has all of the big um, uh, distractions and temptations and all that sort of things. But New York has a lot of those, but also has the power and the engine behind it, the commerce and the political um, power and all those kinds of things. So if those two cities that we are aware of more than any others, perhaps, that would be an explanation or a description, if you will, of what Antioch looked and felt like. And yet this is where we hear the word Christian being used for the very first time. Could you imagine us saying like there was this great movement that came out, you know, that we're all looking back to, oh yeah, I remember when all of a sudden we point back to it all happened in Las Vegas or something along those lines. We would be blown away to think, how did this start there? And yet this is what seems to be taking place. But our text is going to do more than just point to the name's origin. What it's going to demonstrate, what we got a sense from from the reading, is that the characteristics of a Christian that were the hallmark of those who are identified as such are on display, even in this brief little text that we have here today. So just a reminder of where we left off last time, the Jews had received with gladness the Gentile conversion story. They were hearing from Peter that it was legit, that God had moved his His um, message. He was fanning a flame and spreading the flame to those they didn't naturally, culturally, uh, through heritage, relate to at all. There was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And yet God was doing something profound. And he did it diligently, he did it consistently, and he brought his church along to experience that. And so Peter was telling them the story, and then you might recall that it was kind of like in this moment of, of burst out applause and reception, like, okay, we accept this. We, we believe that God is doing something and offering the same salvation to the Gentiles as he has to the Jew. So there's a spread of this wildfire of God's grace and forgiveness and the blaze continues. That's been our metaphor since we've begun the book of Acts because the birth of the church was a lot like a fire. It was just catching on dry kindling and just spreading throughout the whole region. And Jesus had said it would, it would happen first in your hometown and then it would spread out to your region and then it would eventually change the world. Now, that being said, what I'd like to do for today is step away from the fire analogy to use another commonly used metaphor because I think it better portrays what's happening just here in this momentary passage. Because this movement that we're seeing is also like the growth of a garden that God has been planting, and now he is going to be the one to cultivate it and to harvest it, to be involved in it. And so we get to see the way that some of these things are, are playing out in this metaphor a little differently than we would if we were just looking at it as an ignited fire. You know, it's often said that healthy things grow, and that is true. If you have health, especially at certain ages and things, if things are working the way they're supposed to, you grow from that. But healthy things are not the only things that grow, are they? If any of you have ever had a garden or you've had land around at all, you know that weeds grow and they grow fast. I've had, as probably all of you have had, an explosion of those things with all of the rain that we've had. I, there's this one tree thing, bushy, whatever. I don't know what they are. I don't know what the names are. All I knew is it was starting to block doorways and all these kinds of things. Uh, so I got out there and I hacked it down to the ugliest little sticks that were all that was left. It felt like as soon as I walked away and hung those things up, I turned around and poof, I'm back again, bigger than what I had cut it down from. 
And this was a healthy plant and all, but that kind of growth is what we see from weeds and vines and all those things. They just take off and they grow fast. The garden planted in the gospel of Jesus Christ requires careful attention. This isn't just a story about explosive growth and things keep multiplying and there's no care or or attention put into the way that this garden is growing. So the question for us is, how do we know the difference? How do we discern the difference between good growth versus the bad? We know from our weeds, you go and you pull them. Most of them will come out very easily because their roots don't go deep. They're just just below the surface. Even though they're this tall, they don't go very deep. So there's an indication there. How deep do the roots grow? Does the growth that we're seeing or experiencing support life or does it choke it out? as many weeds will do to the surrounding plants and flowers as it drains the nutrients that they require. And how was this, or maybe even better, who was it that planted this in the first place? These are things that the early church had to ask because they needed to know, is this of Jesus? Is this true? Is this movement really something we should be a part of? So for us today as gospel living people, we also ask, how can we ensure that what we do rightly deserves the name Christian? It's been given to us. We often wear it with with honor and dignity and respect, but it's also been labeled on us. Do the things that we do rightly represent that name is the question. So as we're looking at this in a planting kind of metaphor, then the first thing I'd like us to look at here in our text is that we are to plant gospel seeds and we're to plant them in fertile soil. So let's go back to verse 19 together. It says, now those who were scattered, and in my mind, that's like a planting analogy. It's like grass seed. It's like throwing it around. That's what's happening. They're being scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The fertile soil that we are to plant in also requires us to plant the right things in that soil. So we've got a question of location. Where are we planting? Fertile soil, of course. So there were some who were speaking only to Jews. Now that, remember we said last, last time around that there was a cultural apprehension. If they were encountering Gentiles, there was a lot to get over. And our warning and our encouragement to us was that as we're seeing people grow through the process of following Christ, that we give them some room that they're not going to be great in all areas of their life, that some things come hard, some change comes hard. And so how do we grow in that? How do we show patience toward that? How do we help um, lead people out of being stuck in that area. So there were some that perhaps because of a language barrier or perhaps because of some of the cultural, I'm not comfortable with this yet, or I heard God's moving amongst the Gentiles. I'm just not sure I'm experiencing yet, or I don't know how to do that. There were some that held back, but they still planted seed in fertile soil amongst the Jews. 
Some spoke to the Hellenists. We've been introduced to the Hellenists before, and those were the Greek-speaking Jews. Those are the ones who had a little bit more of that Gentile culture availability in them or or, um, familiarity, I should say. And so they weren't as apprehensive, and they were more willing to step out and spread the word there. So they are planting seed in fertile soil regardless of their audience, regardless of their current comfort zones. They're doing something somewhere. And I think this is kind of a theme that continues to happen. Sometimes we elevate the actions of those in Scripture and we forget that they're humans like us and that they'll have limitations, they'll have obstacles they have to get over. And so sometimes we don't think that it should be clunky along the way or it should have some setbacks from time to time. But because God has chosen to spread his word and grow his church through human instruments, some of us is going to get in the way of some of what he's doing. And yet he won't let it thwart his plan. He'll continue to move beyond our limitations as he's doing here in Antioch. So again, if we're looking at, you know, Las Vegas, New York City, other things like that, that that offer so much in opposite direction of what is godly and tempt so many people to drain such great parts of their lives away for that, it wouldn't be our first thought that this is where the most fertile soil for the growth of the church is going to take place. But we're going to find that Antioch becomes a very strategic place for the growth of the gospel. I've painted the picture a little bit already that it's a very wicked city. Even in their shrine for Daphne, who they would worship, their immoral worship would take place. And they had developed a a euphemism in the area that says, oh, yeah, you're just you're expressing the morals of Daphne, which meant you had none. So it was synonymous worship with Daphne or participating in the shrine practices was synonymous with being immoral. And yet this is the most prevalent aspect of practice in the city of Antioch. That That's when you know it's a part of your culture. And I often contend, even though we've gotten slicker in terms of how we develop our temptations and all these kinds of things in our culture today, that we can't say it's worse today than it was then in terms of how we slip and fall and fall away from the call of God. It was as ingrained in the culture of that area as we feel like it is to us today. And yet this is the soil that truth is most ready for. Or the soil that is most ready to receive that kind of seed that the gospel can plant. You know, for far too long, we have practiced a religion, it seems, in, in cultural Christianity. We've practiced a religion of isolation that says, hey, this is about me and my growth and what I get out of it. And so it's better for me to be less distracted. It's better for me to be um, further away from those who are causing me trouble or making my life harder or that sort of thing. And so we isolate and we distance ourselves from from the people that, that don't see it our way, that haven't followed Christ, that haven't given their lives to the Lord yet. And so we just say, I just need some separation from all that. And there's time and place for that. I have some thoughts in the notes that you were handed um, in some of the application points on that. But the reality is, is that we isolate to protect us. Religious eyes look for separation from others for themselves. But gospel eyes seek out desperation in the eyes of others. 
If I found the answer to my life, if I have found the rescue for my soul, why would I hold on to that for myself? Where am I going to find those who are desperate, those who have run the gamut of all, all that this world has to offer only to find that it comes up empty? Even Jesus demonstrates this when the Pharisees are giving him a hard time in Luke 5. They're scribes. They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The challenge for us, because it is hard work, it is difficult and dangerous But have we lost our determination in whatever circumstance you're in to bring light to the dark places that you live in or that you live near or that you've seen from a distance? It could be the place you work. It could be the environment in which you go into every Monday morning or every Tuesday night or whatever your work schedule might be that you say, you know, it'd just be easier to be a Christian if I didn't have to deal with this. It's a very normal and understandable statement, isn't it not? with the things that we deal with and the things that we feel like just pile on us and we carry that that difficulty and the weight of all of that. But is it not those dark places that are also the most fertile soil for what the Lord is trying to do? We wouldn't think so on the surface, would we? There's no way a place of immoral or irreparable behavior would be open to the gospel, we sometimes think. Maybe it's not as distant as your work. Maybe it's under your own roof. Not everybody that comes to church comes with a family that goes to church and not everybody who allows or uh, permits or puts up with one of their spouses or somebody going to church is supportive of that. What's the difficulty that we face? And it wears down our determination. We start to have our eyes dim of the hope that God could be doing in dark places. And sometimes the thing that's lacking is our faith to believe it's so. So it's important where we plant and trusting that the Lord is leading us into the places that are of a fertile, rich soil ready for the gospel seed to be planted. So that would mean that what we plant is important too. This is just as a side note commentary. It's not the kind of thing that uh, a lot of people are losing sleep over here, I'm sure. But um, something that we talk about and pray about often as a leadership in our church is that this is where churches need to reflect most is are we planting gospel or are we planting something else? There's a lot of ways to get people into the building of a church. There's a lot of people to feel in connection with God. There's a lot of ways to do all that sort of stuff. But is the seed that's being planted, the truth of Jesus Christ, is he the transforming person who has been introduced to that person's soul? He is the center of Our message. That's what it means when they said they went to them and they simply preached Jesus. Today's preaching and teaching often has elements of the things that you can just get out of it. We know we've heard this message over and over and over again since the day that they were TV preachers to now they're on TikTok just as much. All that kind of stuff is the wealth, health and self-acceptance which gets us to think of what is in it for me if I'm to follow this God. It becomes a very people-centered pursuit. Paul had responded to this preemptively in 1 Corinthians 2 by saying, For I decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It would sound like what he's saying is, I don't know anything else. I just know that he died and he rose and that's it. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that everything I know, and Paul knew a lot, runs through that filter and that grid. I desired as I was amongst you Corinthians that I would not be preaching anything to you that did not pass through the grid of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to have a gospel centered life. I hear couples often say or pre-married say, I just want a Christ centered marriage and, and, and trying to help people understand what that really looks like means all kinds of things that, that would normally be up to us to determine how they're supposed to turn out, how they're supposed to satisfy us. How do they pass through the grid of the sacrificial cross of Jesus Christ? The things that I love, the things that I spend my money on, the way I raise my children, the work I find or the work I do. The way I prepare for retirement, the way I live in retirement, the service I give, the leisure I spend, the sex I have or don't have or think about. All of those things, how do they pass through the sacrificial cross of Jesus Christ? This is the hardest question in my life. It's always been the hardest question in my life because the message of the cross is come and die to yourself. I like things for me. I like it when things go my way. I like it when things serve and support me. And I know because you're a human being, you can agree. The, the, the fact that we would preach Jesus and know Jesus and him crucified is our only thing means how do all of those things die to that? Trusting and knowing that on the other side of that is what real life looks like, resurrected life looks like. So we need to plant gospel seeds in fertile soil. Secondly, I would point out that we should cultivate gospel growth with the tool of Christian character. This is what we're going to see demonstrated now. Back in our text in verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem. The report of this spread, all this growth was happening. And so church in Jerusalem, they've identified the apostles. They're raising up deacons, all those kinds of things. And they say, okay, we need to go help. We need to go investigate. We need to go support what's happening. So they sent Barnabas. We remember that name. We've mentioned it several times here, both in the text, and we were able to be reminded of him better last week in the um, time of communion around the Lord's table. They sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them and all, all of them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. If we're going to cult cultivate gospel growth in fertile soil, we need to be prepared to, to work that garden, to maintain that garden with the tools that the Lord has given us through his Holy Spirit, that being our character and our conduct. This is what Barnabas was looking for when he went. We'll talk about his character in a second, but what we can tell about his character is what he noticed first. When he walked into all that he had been hearing about, because if you've got reports from that far away, that means something incredible is going on. So when we show up to things that we hear something great is happening, where do our eyes go first? This is what is indicated here in the text for us, is that Barnabas' eyes first went 
to the grace of God that God's children were demonstrating to each other. I don't know how long a lot of them have been in the faith. I don't know how much quote unquote Bible they knew. I don't know how many small groups they participated in. I don't know how many worship songs they knew and everything, but one thing they knew and they got quickly was grace. And they seem to have been nailing that. They seem to have been doing an incredible job to the point where that's the first thing Barnabas notices. And it sets him on fire because he looked for grace to be present. I, I do this kind of thing a lot in the sense that this is my day job is to be in church environments and to be around other leaders and all this kind of stuff and been to several churches and all this kind of stuff. The thing I look for often is not admittedly what Barnabas looks for. I'm looking at other more impressive things. I'm looking at other indicators of how well the church is doing. And I don't even know sometimes how would you look for grace to be active? It's a challenge to me when I see things like how if I look at things through Barnabas's eyes that I would value that above anything else, that my indication for how a church is healthy, how it's growing, how it's being maintained is in the grace and the conduct of God's people. Grace as a theological teaching is God's unmerited favor. It's the pouring out of blessings that we don't deserve. It's the pouring out of blessings that we could never earn. When a, when a culture lives by that kind of thing, I am giving you not just I'm, I'm holding back what you deserve, which is mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve, but I'm going to add credit to your account. I'm going to give you the opposite of what you deserve, which is grace. When a, when a, when a church culture or a household culture is living by that, it is obvious. It is, it is noticeable even to the outsider. Lloyd-Jones says that everything is of grace in the Christian life from the very, very beginning to the very end. So looking at this wicked backdrop of Antioch and seeing that what they meet head first, what comes clashing with all the sensuality and all the other things that that wicked city would offer and promote and tease with, it comes clashing head first with the relentless offer of undeserved forgiveness and the text says that many responded and followed the Lord. Again, against what we would think would happen. They, they seem to have everything you would ever want in this life. I, I don't know how you feel. I, I got a, an, in, an indication, I guess, because like, like I said, you're like me. But when I know I've let the Lord down or I've let those down that I know and love or expecting more from me or whatever the case may be, I know how I feel on the other end of that. And it's not fun. It's not good. There's anywhere I'd rather be but into their seeing eye of my failure. And, and I know that my response to that is because whatever I thought was the right approach, the thing I was going to say, that thing I had to vent and get off my chest that felt so good in the moment as it was luring me in and promising me, right, just get this off your chest. I do that and cause destruction. And then I leave those uh, disappointed in me. I know how I feel on the other end of that is because I've bought the lie that that moment was going to meet all of my needs, my expectations, and my satisfactions, and it didn't. Now, 
I, like you, have the Holy Spirit that points these things out to me perhaps more readily or makes us more sensitive to these kinds of things. The Bible tells us that as people push God away, they're building a callus and it's getting thicker and thicker so that they feel these things less and less. But why would we be surprised that as the gospel goes like a a seed ready to be uh, grabbed whole by fertile soil, that as the gospel goes to the heart of disappointment and letdown by sin's practices, why would we be surprised that it would catch hold and that there would be those that respond to it and say, you mean there's hope for me? You mean there's forgiveness for me? I know who I am and I know I'm playing a good game, making it look like it doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me. But the reality is I am dead inside and you're presenting life. To me, this is why there's an explosion of growth going on in Antioch. I, I say this for our encouragement. There are faithful proclaimers of God's word. There are those that are praying for family members. There are those who are watching the destruction of people right before their very eyes who are giving themselves over to lesser gods only to see their, their hearts ripped out of their chest. We have to remember not to doubt that beneath the seeming pleasures of sin and all the lies that it gives is a heart of brokenness, a heart of doubt, a heart of fear. Many people just don't feel allowed to admit that. They have to keep up the game. They have to keep a smile on their face. They have to keep making you feel like they're completely fulfilled in doing what they're doing. But the reality is that's not what's going on. In fact, now, if you look in the right places, you'll hear the world. That is that system that doesn't ascribe to anything that has to do with godliness. You'll hear them admit that all the things that we point out is like, yeah, the God didn't, God didn't build you for that. God doesn't want this in your life. They're starting to admit all of these things are completely destructive to the human psyche and to their human um, whole affect in life. How do we use these gospel tools? Are we planting in grace? And if so, how are we using the tool of grace in the lives of others? We see this in Barnabas. He is demonstrating for us what this looks like because he exhorts them to remain faithful. I love this message. It's very simple. Luke records it. I'm sure he said it a lot of different ways, but he just puts it as he told them, keep sticking with Jesus. Don't give up on him. And we might think, well, they gave their lives to Christ. That kind of is automatically going to take place. But does it really? All of us need that encouragement. All of us need that drive to continue to remain faithful to the Lord. So Barnabas isn't assuming this is automatic. He knows that the culture that they're living in is going to test this commitment at every turn. And so he continues to remind them, remain faithful to the Lord. The one who got you to this point of finding life is the one who will maintain you even after you've determined to follow him. But Barnabas does this in a Barnabas kind of way. The word here that the scriptures give us is exhort. We need a little bit of reminder of where Barnabas got his name. This was not his birth given name. He was Joseph or Joseph back when we met him in chapter four of Acts. But they gave him the name, the son of encouragement, because that's who he was. They said, well, this this name is not fitting for what he is. This is more specific to who he is. So we get the word encouragement or exhortation from this. But but. In in the Greek, what's going on here is broader than just... Sometimes we're able to just get like a one-to-one correlation. Greek says this. English means this. 
There's a lot of different meanings, a broader meaning in the Greek for this. So that should indicate for us that the application of this is deeper than just, oh, I know that word. The, the word here, parakaleo, is familiar if you know the name for the Holy Spirit, who is the paraclete. There is a coming alongside, there is a supporting, there is an encouraging, there is an enlightening aspect to being an exhorter. In fact, it means to invite or to come near to somebody. You get close. Hey, this is what you need to hear. There's a coming near part of it. There's a comforting aspect of it. But it's more than just, and this is why it would be a shame to just pin being a cheerleader on Barnabas. He was just good with the pom-poms. He just made everybody feel good. And he was the rallying voice behind, you can do it, you can do it. Which, by the way, do you know what a cheerleader's favorite color is? It's dad joke moment in the sermon. I should have a little section that says insert. Uh, what is a cheerleader's favorite color? Yeller. So, um, all right. You've already tried that one today. It's getting old and overplayed. Something deeper is going on from Barnabas here. He's not just rallying. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. It's good to have those people in our lives, but he's aiming for something more, something deeper. This is an encouragement that is more than just holding your hand for comfort, but yet it is less than cracking a whip of get your rear end in gear, get over yourself and get going. There's some tension in between this idea of, yes, I am here for your comfort, but I am also here to see you uh, succeed in doing what? Staying faithful to the Lord. That was his exhortation. That was his encouragement. He was willing to, it would seem, that he was willing to be the encouraging, lighthearted guy who was also willing to get in your face from time to time. And it would seem as though he had some discernments to know when and how to do that. This is where Luke says he gets this from. Was he born this way? Was it just part of his family culture and upbringing? I don't know. But Luke wants to to see where the credit for this gift comes from. It says he was this way or he was able to do this because he was full of the Holy Spirit. I think Luke's including this because he doesn't want us to just chalk this up to some special talent that Barnabas has. He's just that good of a guy. I know people in this room who have a natural ability to just be the person others want to be around. And it's an incredible gift. It's something that really lifts others up. And it's not empty. It's not vain. It is genuine. I care for you. And it seems to just pour off them naturally. But I can't tell whether or not this is some form of a talent or if this is something deeper at work, which is you're full of the Holy Spirit. Luke wants us to see that Barnabas's approach to exhortation is attainable and might I even add expected of you and me. Because being full of the Holy Spirit isn't some unique uh, outpouring that was God says, I'm just going to do this on Barnabas and the rest of you schleps, you're going to have to just muddle along like everybody else. It's put in there for us to say, and we too are also exhorted by Paul to be full of the Holy Spirit ourselves. And that means to be controlled by, that means to be in surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. The more of us we yield to God, the fuller of the Holy Spirit we are. 
I think this is important for us to understand. There is an expectation as Luke is recording historic events. He's saying, and this is what fuels the church. People are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the way that it reveals itself is grace will be evident because people are exhorting one another compassionately, kindly, but directly. They're being tactful even as it's happening. So Barnabas is an incredible example for us. Peter was right last week in saying that we really should be highlighting a lot of Barnabas uh, more often in Scripture. And it's not because he was somehow gypped of not being an apostle or anything like that, but this is what builds the church. Not just the people at the quote-unquote top, not just the ones who are given the title, but it's those that seem to be like that kind of seamless, they're moving their way through and keeping the thing going because they remain faithful and available to the moving of the Holy Spirit. And he's wise in that he enlists Saul for help. There's so much going on. He spent some time there and he's like, wow, this is bigger than one man can handle for one. And then secondly, I know just the guy for the task. In fact, he's been out of pocket, at least in our purview for about the last decade. I'm going to go look for him. Verse 25, he goes and he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul was sent there by the church in Jerusalem saying, hey, look, it's getting dangerous. There's a target on your back. We want you to go to Tarsus and do some work there. And there's all kinds of things that took place there. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. As I said, Saul's been kind of tucked away, at least on the the more global sense, been tucked away for the last decade. And uh, it's not that he was just sitting there twiddling his thumbs or being idle. There's most likely, many will agree that most likely this is the season where he is uh, experiencing some of the most intense persecution that he references in other books of the Bible. He references specifically five sets of uh, receiving five sets of 39 lashes from the leaders of the synagogues. Uh, all forms of persecutions and other losses that he refers to, the loss of all things in Philippians 3. So probably this is the period of time he's experiencing all those deep hardships, but then he's also having these other uh, formative things going on with uh, the, uh, the, the visions that he's receiving of the Lord. All of these things are happening outside of all that God's doing in Antioch. But Barnabas was humble and wise enough to know that the gospel garden needed the apostles' expertise, needed his unique calling, his preparation, his maturity to come and keep it healthy. Barnabas wasn't there just to be the top dog. He wasn't there to say, you know, none of you called me an apostle or anything like that or any of those kinds of things. He said, this is amazing work of the Lord. It needs help. And Paul can bring something to this. He probably also knew, because he's a man of discernment, that Saul needed the mission too. While he was doing all these incredible things in the Tarsus area, he needed to be counted on and and given a new context and a mission too, perhaps. That's speculation on my part, but seems important that Luke is bringing it up in such a personal way instead of just stating the fact that this is what happened. What is Barnabas demonstrating for us here? That gospel-shaped character, that is one of the tools that we need to cultivate the garden. Gospel-shaped character brings others along for the good of the mission. 
Today is a highlight day for the men's retreat, so we're going on and on about it today because we are concentrating our promotion of it for today and our recap of it and everything. So if you're new to our church, don't think this is what we talk about every week, but it's important to look back on what was accomplished there because from my perspective, what I look for, I told you as Barnabas walked in, he was looking for um, acts of grace going on, and that's what I went into that uh, time looking for as well. I've been very blessed. Um, uh, our whole staff has been blessed when we go to the men's retreats that we're not asked to really do things. We're actually allowed to go and get refreshed and, and sit back and watch things happen. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to see because it's an indicator of what leadership looks like in our church. And I'm blown away that every year it just grows and grows and grows, not in terms of just the numeric attendance of people that come. But what I saw this this year was that uh, so many different people, whether they were on the men's quote unquote leadership team or not, had different roles of leadership and were called on to um, to be present in certain aspects. What I would call sometimes small things or what many call small things I think are quite huge is, is like, um, having just different men pray over the meals as we get together. Every meal had somebody new standing up and just praying and leading us. And guys, you don't have to raise your hands cause I know you don't want to, but if you will admit that is one of the hardest things to do is to pray in public. It's, it's awkward and uncomfortable. You hear someone like me say you should be praying with your wife or you should be willing to pray in your small group or something. And there's something about us that we just kind of shut down. We're like, oh, I'm not sure I'm ready to and everything. I watched my father get, get, uh, uh, go through all kinds of fits and knots when he thought the pastor might call on him to come close in prayer and it scared him to death. He could face so many things, but that was a fearful thing. So when I see that kind of thing on display, I'm seeing God is moving in the way that um, our men are stepping up. I know the same thing are happening with our ladies' ministries and retreats and things as well. It's just incredible to see the shared leadership that's taking place. Gospel-shaped character brings others along for the good of the mission. Barnabas wasn't going to hog the spotlight. He was going to share it. Okay. One more minute before I'm technically supposed to be done in my own way of thinking. Nobody, I will know, no elder has ever told me when I'm supposed to be done. So now they're going to go write a law. I got one more page. You guys give me, can I? Yeah. Okay. Not hearing any no's. Um, let me try to do this quickly just because it's, again, it's important to the text and I am rabbit trailing a lot. All right, back to verse 27, as we look at what they were able to reap as a harvest, no gardening growth, all that kind of stuff is complete until we talk about the fruit that came from it. And so we are called to reap the harvest of gospel compassion. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. There's history there and all that kind of stuff that isn't necessarily important to our, our, our um, text that we're studying. So I'm just going to let that sit there, okay? Because verse 29 says what they did with that information. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What I want to point out here very quickly is that the disciples were looking for, they were looking at the horizon. What is coming? What weather should we be expecting? What changes in our climate 
will we be forced to face here? There was an awareness, a discernment that was taking place amongst that leadership and amongst the church. I could skip to, isn't it cool that they gave and they raised and all that sort of stuff? Yes, that's great. And we will spend a second on that. But the the important thing to me is that there was a view towards what was coming, what threats might be coming our way, what famines were people going to physically experience. So the disciples determined is what the scripture says, because they were looking at the warnings. Sometimes we think, well, because there's prophecy involved in this. Well, if we knew when something was going to happen, then yes, I would be more ready to act. If I knew when Jesus was coming back, then you'd probably see me in church all the time. I'd be leading this group. I'd be doing this thing. I'd be telling my coworkers about this. I'd be raising my family. If I just knew when, I would take it more seriously. They didn't wait. They were looking for these things. They said, when it happens, it'll be too late. We have to be prepared to meet the needs of the people before it comes. Uh, Paul says to us in Romans 13, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come. This is what we get cranked up on. We want to know the hour. We want to know the time. Give me the date. When is Jesus coming back? He says, you know the time, that the hour has come for us to what? For you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We can get so torqued out about prophetic um, nuances or, or answers to the question or mathematical solutions or those kinds of things because somehow it's supposed to motivate us to tighten the belt and do things for the Lord. But Paul is saying, you already know the time. It's time to wake up. That salvation is closer than when you first believed. It is coming. He hasn't lied to us yet. Why would we think so? Wearsby says the purpose of true prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stir up our hearts to do the will of God. So what we see on the horizon uh, prepares us for the reaping of the harvest. But what we bring to the table, especially in this instance, but I think it's a symptomatic of gospel environments, is that they brought uh, relief to others, each according to his ability. There was no pressure on them to do more than they could do. There was no expectation that they had to one up the other person. I love how Luke includes that it was each according to their ability. Good stewardship and what we yield with our gifts back to the Lord and his people starts somewhere and moves towards greater giving. There isn't an expectation of, well, you didn't give this amount, so it's not enough. There's a place to start for everybody. It's more, uh, uh, and, and you might think I'm just talking about money at this point, and I'm not. It's all these things, but our minds go towards money. That's why Jesus taught on it so much, because our hearts are in our wallets often. But good stewardship starts somewhere and says, Lord, what I have, I want to grow in releasing more to you. And this is what we see taking place. They provided relief to the brothers in Judea. They were taking care of their family first. They were looking after the needs of other Christians, Christ ones, those that were belonging to the way. And the other cool thing is that now the Greeks are sending help back to the Jews. So we're seeing the Lord work through this very tangible, physical thing called money to um, bridge the gap culturally from all these divisions that they had experienced uh, as different people.
So it's pretty incredible what can happen that way. The question for us this morning is, do you carry the name Christian by reputation? Somebody way back when said, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Jesus has told us, and we've said it often in John 13, that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The implication I think Luke is giving us here this morning is that our faith is to be recognizable, not just as we hear so often in our daily mantra of, well, my faith is very personal to me, which is another code word for, I don't want to talk about it. That it is recognizable, that it is tangible, that others will name you such because of that reputation. We didn't get into this much, but this wasn't a name. Christians was not a name they gave to themselves. It was more of a cultural dig. Oh, you're one of those Christ people. Now it's kind of come full circle, hasn't it? (laughs) Or you're one of those, right? How consistent is your character in dark places of the world in which you live? Fertile soil in the midst of wickedness. That's where we're going to find a greater hunger for grace. Are you willing to receive gospel encouragement from someone else? Or are you just looking for that cheerleader who's going to tell you everything you think you need to hear? Are you willing to also be accountable to that one who's going to tug at you a little bit? They're not just there to crack the whip to be heard, but they're there for your growth and they will say the tough things at the right time. Do you see the love of God in this calling? He's planted his truth in the fertile soil of our black hearts. He has cultivated a surrender in us towards his lordship. And he reaps a spirit of sacrificial offering on behalf of others. As a body of believers here at faith, we are moving towards opportunity, not away from it. We are looking for, Lord, where is the fertile soil that we are to be planting the gospel? We center on the cross of Christ, not our own ability or capabilities or anything along those lines, but all of it passes through the the portal, if you will, of sacrificial surrender on the cross. And we utilize our gifts for the good of others, not hoarding praise or not looking for the spotlight as Barnabas could have easily done. Instead, we bring others along in the journey to make the mission healthier and, and to spread further so that the growth is something that everybody can see and easily pick the fruit from. Would you please stand and let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your servants. Thank you, Lord, for the modern day Barnabases that I encounter on a weekly basis here at Faith. I thank you, Lord, for keeping the spirit of that exhortation alive in your church. Lord, I am confident and believe fully that that is the reason for its health. So continue to raise up those Barnabas-type people in our midst, Lord. May we be encouraging it. May we be anticipating it. May we be available to it ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for the sensitivity of your children. We thank you for the hallmark of being Christians that we would give to others, that we'd make ourselves available to the needs around us. But, Lord, we are often intimidated by the darkness And Lord, I wanted to communicate to your people this morning that I get it and that you understand it. But you have emboldened us and you've strengthened us, Lord, to step faithfully into those territories. If we don't go, who else will? So, Lord, help us to bring the truth of your word. Help us to bring the knowledge of your son to those areas so that we would reap a harvest of incredible fruit of many, many coming 
to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.